as, as Datsy said, my name's David. There's a lot of Davids around. Um, and I'm one of the elders here at Hope City. Well, schools are back. That might have been producing awe from the kids, and it might have been a yippee from the mums and dads. Uh, it seems that summer's over for another year. Seems like that to some people. And I wonder if um, some of you here this morning are already beginning to think of your next holiday, mulling over in your mind where you might go for that well-earned break. And you think to yourself, I'll just have a little look to see what it's likely to cost me to get there. So you pop into one of the airline websites, you tap in your dates and your destination, you press enter and you wait for the results. Up on your computer screen comes the times of the flights, but alongside it comes these words. Only three seats left at this price. Last booked nine minutes ago. Or perhaps you're on booking.com or Airbnb. There are other providers seeing what accommodation might be available. And there on the screen are yet more messages. Only one room left on this site. Or six people have looked at this hotel in the last five seconds. Uh, That's a wee bit of an exaggeration, but you see what I'm getting at. It's a clever piece of marketing. And there's no doubt it works. I've been there myself. I've plugged in some dates. I've gone away to chat over with friends and family, come back three days later, and boom, the cost has shot up, and that apartment has now been let. The message is clear. Don't worry. Sorry, don't delay, book now, save money, look what you might miss, don't put it off. This morning, as we pick up the account of what happens next to the Apostle Paul, we come across someone whose decision to postpone had more serious consequences than losing a few pounds. Today's reading is Acts chapter 24. You can find that on page 1121 of the Church Bibles. And Liz is going to read it for us. Liz. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way most excellent, Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, 
or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which, is called, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is written in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Thanks, Liz. Last week, Dustin shared from the previous chapter on Acts about a plot to assassinate Paul. Forty Jews swore an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed him. And they came up with a plan to get Paul out into the open. In God's providence, the plot was foiled in a remarkable way. Paul's nephew heard of the plot and got a message to the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, that an ambush awaited Paul and his soldiers were he to agree to send them back to the Sanhedrin. So under armed guard, all 470 soldiers, Paul was escorted out of Jerusalem under cover of darkness and transferred to Caesarea, some 60 miles north, with a letter to Felix, the regional governor. So as chapter 24 opens, Paul is under house arrest in Herod's palace, waiting for his accusers to arrive from Jerusalem and his trial to begin. Courtrooms can be intimidating places. I think I've been called for jury service about five, maybe six times. And anyone who has served as a juror knows that uneasy feeling of not being quite familiar with what's going on. The gowns and, and the wigs. Please rise for judge, so-and-so. Yes, Your Honour. No, Your Honour. My learned friend. All very formal. All a bit disconcerting, even if you're not the one standing in the dock. In Roman times, juries did exist, normally drawn from the privileged classes, but in this instance, there was no jury 
No, Paul's fate lay in the hands of one man and one man alone. In this case, Antonius Felix, provincial governor of Judea. With a nod of his head or a casual word, he could either free Paul or condemn him. Felix was, as Dustin reminded us last week, not someone to be trifled with. He was the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become a provincial governor. As a boy, Felix had been freed by Antonia, mother of the future emperor Claudius. Along with his brother Pallas, Felix grew up with Claudius, so when Claudius became emperor in AD 41, Pallas and Felix were given important positions. And it was under the influence of Pallas that secured the appointment of Felix as governor of Judea. The Roman historian Tacitus said of Felix, he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king in the spirit of a slave. He was ruthless. He quelled any dissent with brutal force and he had even murdered the previous high priest Jonathan for daring to criticize him. Let's set the scene. The high priest Ananias arrives in Caesarea with some of the Jewish elders. He brings with him a lawyer, Tertullus. Now we can be sure that Tertullus is no junior trainee. No doubt he's the best money can buy. A hotshot lawyer, he knows his way around a courtroom. And so he begins his accusation with the customary Roman courtroom greeting. It even had a name. It was called the Captatio Benevolentiae. It was meant to basically curry favour with the judge. This is what he said. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere, and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Don't his words make you feel a bit sick? He is overflowing with flattery. He speaks of a a long period of peace and reforms in the nation. Now, not by any stretch of the imagination could it be said that peace and reform had been enjoyed under Felix. In reality, any stability that there had been had been wrought through brutal suppression and fear. And look how he finishes. I, I don't want to trouble you on Julie with this trifling matter, so I promise not to take up too much of your time. There. So what are the charges? Tertullus outlines three of them. First off, Paul's a troublemaker. The word used here in verse 5 could equally be translated pest or plague. This man, Tertullus argues, is a pestilence on the earth. He spreads dissent everywhere he goes. He's a threat to your peace and stability, Felix. He's public enemy number one. Secondly, he doesn't leave it there, he's a ringleader of a sect by the name of the Nazarenes. By inference, a sect sect which is dangerous to the state and one which needs to be put down and stamped out. Thirdly, he even tried to desecrate the temple. He had brought a Gentile, Trophimus the Ephesian, into the confines of the temple. We read about that back in chapter 21. But this was a serious charge if it could be proved. 
for the Romans had given the Jews wide powers for dealing with offences within the temple confines. Now, Tertullus probably said a lot more. He was a lawyer after all, but Dr. Luke summarizes it for us. And he tells us that the other Jews present, Ananias and the Jewish elders, joined in the clamor. I wonder if I'm speaking to someone here this morning who finds themselves trying to defend their faith in Jesus in a hostile arena, just like Jesus, just like Paul. Perhaps it's in your workplace, the university lecture hall, the schoolroom, maybe even around the family table. I'd say to you this morning, don't be surprised. The values of the world around us are actively hostile to what the Bible teaches. But if that's you, I want to say take courage as we look at Paul's defense. Paul is called into the witness box. Unlike Ananias, he has no one to represent him. As was customary, Paul addresses Felix first. I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Note the stark contrast with Tertullus's swooning flattery. Paul seems to be saying, Felix, you've been around a while. You know the lie of the land. I'm glad to be given this chance to tell you what really happened. I wonder if, that, if at that moment, the Holy Spirit reminded Paul of the promise he'd received from Jesus himself not that long ago. Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. What freedom, what liberty this promise must have given to Paul as he stood there. And in the same way, being united to Christ should give us all the courage to speak up for him, knowing that he has called us to be his witnesses, but also knowing that he stands with us. And so Paul addresses the charges. Let me quickly summarize. To the first charge, he says in verses 11 and 12, Felix, you can easily check out that I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days. That's a known fact. That's not nearly long enough to stir up a riot, either in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And I went to worship. On the contrary to what is being claimed, I came on a mission of mercy. If you glance down at verse 17, Paul says, I came to Jerusalem to distribute gifts and offerings for the poor. These charges aren't, these charges being brought today, they can't prove any of them. What about being a ringleader? Verse 14, I admit, says Paul, that I am a follower of the way, what in verse 5 Tertullus had called the Nazarenes. But rather than it being a dangerous cult, I believe in the same things that these people do. Everything in the law and the prophets And in fact, I have the very same hope that these men do, that there will be a resurrection of both those who are right with God and those who aren't. Note that once again, just as we saw previously, Paul focuses on the resurrection. And he says, because of that hope, I want to strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. What of the third charge? As to defiling the temple, total nonsense, Paul says. When they found me in the temple, I was giving out gifts, and I was ceremonially clean. 
Again, we read about that in Acts chapter 21. He had purified himself for seven days. There were no crowds. There was no disturbance. Then Paul makes a counterclaim. There were some Jews who came from Asia and who came deliberately to stir up trouble. Felix, why aren't they here to bring charges? Paul knew well that Roman law demanded that accusers appear personally in court. All in all, Governor Felix, there is zero evidence against me. In fact, maybe you should ask them what I'm really on trial for. What's this really all about? Look at verse 21. Unless it is this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. You see, ultimately, Felix, this sham is not about me. It's about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Once again, Paul hones in on the central truth, the resurrection of Jesus. As Matt pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is at the very core of the gospel, the good news. Why is that? One writer summarized why the resurrection is so important to Christians like this. He said, God the Father raised Christ from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures and of Christ's own promises, declaring Christ to be his son and his acceptance of Christ's redemptive work guaranteeing the justification of spiritual life and final resurrection of all believers. Paul steps down. The boldness of his defense has left Felix in a bit of a dilemma. On the one hand, he knows how bad it would look for him politically were he to upset Ananias and the other leaders by freeing Paul. They represented the ruling aristocracy in Jerusalem. On the other hand, Paul is a Roman citizen, and with that comes certain rights. Not only that, Felix has some previous knowledge about the way, and clearly Paul has demonstrated that there's no case to answer. So what does he do? He fudges. He calls for an adjournment. I'll send for Claudius Lysias, and I'll make my decision when he arrives. The accusers disperse. And Felix gives orders that Paul should remain under guard, but with certain privileges. As for Claudius Lysias, we never hear whether he ever came, or indeed, whether he was even sent for. The focus of the rest of the chapter shifts from Felix's residence, shifts to Felix's residence from the public arena of the courtroom to the privacy of his home. And it's here that we're introduced for the first time to Drusilla, his third wife. We are told she was Jewish, which is probably the nicest attribute that Luke could find for her. We do know from contemporary sources that she was a beautiful young woman. Felix had seduced her by the promise of power and wealth and caused her to leave her previous husband. She came from an important family. She was the sister of Agrippa, who we shall meet in chapter 25, Her father was Herod Agrippa, who had martyred James. We read about that earlier in Acts chapter 12. Her great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who was responsible for the slaughter of all the young boys around Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. A few days have passed, and Felix descends for Paul 
Perhaps he and Drusilla want to find out more about the way. Maybe they want to argue some theological point. But Paul wants to talk about neither of these things. Verse 24, Paul spoke to them about faith in Jesus, about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. He would have shared about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. When he talked about righteousness, he might have said something like this to him, that there was no one righteous, not even one. He would have told them about the necessity to repent, to turn to Jesus for salvation and to be made right with God. When he talked about self-control, he might have shared what the Christian life involved. The self-control was one of the fruits of the Spirit. He wrote this to the church in Galatia, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And when he spoke about judgment, he doubtless would have warned them that they would be judged for their outward acts and inward thoughts. He might have said this to them. He said this, Paul said this to the church at Corinth. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. How could Paul speak with such boldness before such a cruel man? It seems to me that Paul knew despite their wealth and their power, that Felix and Drusilla still needed to be saved. He knew that the wages of their sins was death, but that God offered them the gift of eternal life. It's why week by week, here at Hope City, we try as best we can to share the same good news. I don't know all of you here this morning. I don't know your background or what you've done in the past, but I will say to each and every one of us, Nothing you have done puts you beyond the love of God. The same offer of salvation still stands. Put yourself in Felix and Drusilla's shoes. Up to that moment, they had lived a totally immoral life. By their actions, they had shown a complete lack of self-control, and the only judgment they feared was from an emperor far away in Rome. But Paul's message had hit the mark. It put fear into the heart of this cruel man. God had spoken to him through Paul. His sinful life had been exposed and its consequences made plain. Felix had never been nearer the kingdom of God than at that moment. Some commentators have said that what was said next is one of the most tragic statements in the Bible. Felix said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At that moment, with those words, things changed for Felix. He had been presented with the good news and had rejected it. He had been offered the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ and had spurned it. He had been given an opportunity and he had put it off. If this morning you sense God is speaking to you, if you feel the crushing weight of all the wrong things you have done before a holy God, can I urge you not to be like Felix? Don't put it off. Don't say to God that it's just not convenient right now. For the sake of your eternal soul, please respond to God's call. 
I'm going to stop for a few moments. I'm going to put the words of a prayer on the screen. Matt shared this prayer a few weeks ago. If you sense that God is speaking to you this morning, then pray these words. Just going to leave the words on the screen. I'm going to have a few minutes of silence and then I'll finish. Luke records that over the next two years, Paul and Felix spoke often. Tragically, there was no change of heart. And rather than want to know more about Jesus, it seems that Felix was secretly hoping that Paul might try and buy his freedom. Next week, God willing, Ed will pick up Luke's account as Felix is recalled to Rome and is replaced by Festus. And what of Paul? Two long years and no nearer Rome. Felix, wanting to curry favor with the Jews as he departs, leaves Paul in prison. It would appear in human terms, Paul is no longer a threat to anyone. He's been forgotten about. Languishing under a Roman guard with no freedom in sight. This was a delay of another kind. But while many of his accusers had long since moved on, the Lord had not forgotten his promise. Paul would testify in Rome, but just not yet. Let me pray. As I'm praying, I'd like to invite the musicians up. So let's close our eyes. Father God, I thank you that you are patient with us not wanting anyone to die without knowing Christ. I thank you that you are still speaking to us through your word. Please move by your Holy Spirit in this gathering this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.